If you open your Bibles to the first letter to the Corinthians and the 11th chapter and the 24th verse of the 11th chapter, then you will be at the location within God's Word that is going to constitute the focus of our study this afternoon. Follow along with me as I read through the 26th verse. And when Jesus had given thanks, Jesus broke the bread and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup, when he had supped, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do ye, as oft as ye drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. This afternoon, we have the privilege of experiencing this ordinance that Jesus instituted in the presence of the original disciples, indeed, the twelve apostles upon whom the church is founded were gathered around him in close company on that evening in the upper room, on the night that Jesus stayed the course and offered his life a sacrifice unto God on our behalf. I draw your attention to what Jesus emphasized when he instituted this ordinance. One of the things that he emphasized is captured in the phrase, this do in remembrance of me. He stated it as it relates to the broken bread, and then he repeated it as it relates to the spilled out, poured out wine. This essence of the focus that Jesus presented to the hearts of his disciples on that evening must be something that is always freshly made aware to our hearts. Something that is always reinvigorated. Something that is always made lively. Something that our attention is drawn to every time we assemble ourselves together, believing that Jesus Christ is in our midst by the Spirit and participate in the communion of the bread and cup. While it may sound somewhat ironical for me to say that we need to remember to remember. Those who have a sensitive heart to the things of the Lord, who have reflected on these issues, will realize that that is not the beginning of a riddle that goes nowhere and is just a rattling off of words. It is indeed a very serious aspect of what it is to partake worthily. It is to recall that at the center of this ordinance is the objective of remembering the Lord Jesus. I begin by pointing out to you that you have to understand what it is that we are supposed to remember. Perhaps even more deeply, we have to understand what does this remembering have as its primary focus and objective. So that you can understand what I'm referring to here, I give you the following sample 
of views that have been held throughout church history and that to this day remain hotly debated, if you will, if you would. Certainly, if the debate is not hot under the collar, it is certainly hot in terms of zeal and in terms of varying viewpoints. And so there is not at this time consensus even on what is the nature of this remembering How do we even begin to direct our minds toward right content and toward right objective? So here's a sampling of how throughout church history the remembering objective has been executed. Thomas Aquinas, the medieval theologian, most closely associated with the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church as it developed within the Middle Ages. This position that I'm about to relay to you, that Aquinas is a representative of, would also be, for the most part, true of the Eastern Orthodox Church. Their view is that this memory that Jesus is calling us to is the memory of something absolutely literal. You have heard of the terminology transubstantiation. And the view of Aquinas, the view of the Roman Catholic Church, the view of some orthodox circles, is that the memory that Jesus is calling us to is to a real sacrifice, a literal sacrifice that takes place every time the church of Jesus Christ observes the communion of the bread and cup. As a matter of fact, according to the Roman Catholic Church, after the mystery is accomplished at the hands of God's officiating priest, the bread is no longer bread. The fruit of the vine is no longer the fruit of the vine. They are transubstantiated into the actual body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they would say in Aristotelian language that while when you hold the wafer, or even if there was some circle that held these views that allowed various forms of bread to be used, that when you hold that in your hand, that bread, that grain product, you have what they would say is the accident. The thing that looks like bread, that's just the accident. But the substance has been changed into the Lord Jesus Christ. You are taking Jesus as a fresh sacrifice offered to you on the altar as we're gathered here today into your body. And when you drink from the chalice, if they allow you to, or you hold a cup with wine in it or grape juice in it, whatever you're using that began as the element by which to observe this communion, many would call it this supper, then the juice or the wine is the accident, but the thing itself, and most importantly, you have the substance of Jesus' blood. So when it comes to the Directive, when it comes to the call and the responsibility and the beautiful invitation that Jesus gives us, do this in remembrance of me. The way that the Roman Catholic mind 
begins to focus and direct itself is very much, we might say, in the direction solely of Jesus, but in the direction of Jesus as a literal new sacrifice, literally and indeed visibly, though in the emblem or in the accident, I should say, of bread and wine, but he is literally there. You will know the name Martin Luther, the most impacting reformer, in terms of really changing the tide, if you were, if you will, of the flow of false religion and by the grace of God causing it to recede and make space for true religion to reemerge, at least in many respects. Martin Luther held what we could call the mystical view of how one remembers, one begins the call to remember the Lord Jesus. Your mind isn't to be drawn to the literal new sacrifice of Christ, Luther argues, but you should have within your mind something working that is in the realm of the mystical. Luther taught an idea that is in church history and in dogmatic theology come to be known as consubstantiation. It is not a term that he himself used, but it appears to be a term that adequately represents his views. In my own opinion, and in the opinion of many others that interact with the history and development of what is often called Eucharistic theory or Eucharistic points of view, I feel that Luther never quite understood himself what he was saying. But Luther argues that though the bread remains bread, Though the fruit of the vine remains the fruit of the vine, he does not re-sacrifice Christ. None of the other views that I will be giving you, starting with Luther and the two following, none of the other views re-sacrifice Christ. But Luther argued over against Calvin and Zwingli, and it was a very hotly debated issue within the era of the burgeoning of the Reformation, and as you would imagine, I suppose, it remains still disputed among the adherents of those different theological trajectories and those who have interacted as a result of the thinking of these men into sort of culling together their own perspective on this matter. Luther argues that there is nonetheless a real presence of Jesus in the bread. There is a real presence of Jesus in the fruit of the vine. It is not our purpose this afternoon to analyze these various views and to ask some of the obvious questions as to, or as, for example, exactly what do you mean, Luther? If I might presume to speak somewhat on his behalf in Lutheran theology in general, though I understand it's much more sophisticated or at least would have the appearance of much more sophistication and volumes and volumes are written on these matters. But in essence, Luther would say it's mystical. Jesus said, he would say, this is my body. And we must retain something within us as we remember the Lord Jesus on the occasions with, with, in which we have the communion of the bread and cup. We must come, we must prepare our hearts, we must understand in our spirits and in our minds that while this is not a fresh sacrifice of Jesus, while the accident of the bread remains bread and the accident of the fruit of the wine remains the fruit of the vine, 
nonetheless, somehow mystically, and over against the other views that would speak against this truth, Luther argues Jesus is somehow there. It's known as the real presence view. Thirdly, I give you the view of John Calvin. John Calvin, in conversation with Luther and Zwingli, and against the backdrop of Aquinas and much of patristic theology, John Calvin presented a view that we can call symbolic and effective. John Calvin appreciates the sacredness of this ordinance. That sacred concept, in an odd sort of way, I would argue, is certainly present in Aquinian theology and in Lutheran theology. I certainly don't agree with the way in which they formulate the sacredness, but if you're saying that Jesus Christ is present in a special way when you pronounce the right language over the elements, you certainly are speaking about something that is holy and sacred and unusual. And if you argue that in a way that is different and unique than other occasions when we gather, that there is a real presence of the Lord Jesus Christ in the bread after we pray over it. As Jesus himself did in the upper room, you will recall, he took bread, he broke it, he prayed over it, and then he said, this is my body. John Calvin is very empathetic, very much himself, under the conviction that this that was instituted of Jesus must retain a sacredness to it. But his perspective, his view, his understanding of Scripture is that what we should see in the bread and in the fruit of the vine are sacred symbols, not bland, everyday things, just a wee bit of bread. For example, if I feel a little lazy this afternoon, instead of passing around the plate, I just toss you the bread to your seat, hope you catch it. I recognize, of course, any behavior like that would be out of place in God's house, but I'm trying to stir your thoughts to recognize that there is a sacredness. As a matter of fact, you may disagree with this, but I am not in favor, and I think probably most of us share this view. When we finish or complete the communion of the bread and cup among ourselves as a group of believers, if there is remaining bread and remaining fruit of the vine, whether you're using a low-alcoholic fruit of the vine beverage, which I understand for sure the Scriptures support. In other words, they certainly did use that in Jesus' day. I recognize that. Or if you're using the fruit of the vine in the form of grape juice, I'm not in our time together this afternoon thinking through those options here. I'm pronouncing on these particular things, and I trust you understand that. But what I'm saying is if there are leftovers, as it were, of these elements... I am not in favor of someone just walking up, you know, or myself or whoever might be a little bit thirsty or a little bit hungry and just taking a clump of bread or taking a little more of the juice, pouring your cup again and sending it down the back of your throat. I don't think that Jesus is in the bread. I don't think that Jesus is in the fruit of the vine. But I do think this is something. there is something sacred about these symbols. And especially if you appreciate the conversation that was going on between Calvin and Luther and Zwingli. Well, for one thing, you will know that Calvin held the middle position, as a matter of fact. And what I'm referring to here is that, with reference to the Lutherans, he acknowledged that there is something special 
If you wish to use the word mystical, but you properly limited what you mean by utilizing that terminology, then I believe Calvin would be fine with that designation. That's what we mean by it is symbolic and effective. The mind should not be going to something that is literally Jesus, Calvin would say, against Aquinas. The mind should not be going to something that is mystical over against the Lutherans. And clearly that's also involved in Eastern Orthodoxy and in Roman Catholicism. If it's going to be changed into Jesus, it's also mystical. Your mind should not be moving in these mystical dimensions. This is not what it is to remember properly. How do you prepare your mind? What is the call all about? What is the essence of this memory? What was Jesus driving at when he said, do this in remembrance of me? How can you remember to remember well when you don't even understand how to get your brain thinking in the right direction so that you are remembering with an alignment of proper thought patterns? Calvin would say, as I was stating, over against the Lutherans, your mind should not be going in a mystical, undefined dimension. But nonetheless, there is something effective. There is something powerful about observing this ordinance together. Sometimes Calvin's understanding is known as the memorial view. It is a memory of the Lord Jesus attended by a spiritual but not a local presence. Which is to say... Over against the Catholics, Jesus is not locally, locally in the grain element. You probably know that the priests will hold up the host after they pronounce the hocus pocus. And you're supposed to venerate the host at that moment because it is Jesus Christ. He is locally present. So too with Lutheran theology. If Jesus is somehow in a special way in real presence, then he is locally, L O. C-A-L-L-Y, locally here. Calvin says he's not locally here. Now again, over against Lutheran and Catholic formulations, he's not saying the Lord isn't around. He's saying he's not locally here. He is spiritually present. There is a spiritual experience of a memory, a memory that has a spiritual dimension to it. Well, then finally, in this sampling of theological formulations within which the memory project has taken place throughout church history. Think of yourself as being an affiliate of any one of these views and recognize that if you were a part of a particular affiliation theologically, your mind would work in a certain way as you began to try to remember the Lord Jesus. So if you were a Zwinglian, if you felt that Ulrich Zwingli had the best understanding of what this whole idea entails, then your viewpoint could be captured by the term metaphorical. When Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood, it is straightforwardly, purely, perhaps even simply, that might misrepresent Zwingli's angle and motive, I do think, and again, I'm not digressing into a teaching on the various views. That would be something interesting, and we can do that in some setting at some time. But when you do read polemical studies or polemical literature on this matter, as in any polemical literature, 
people do tend to characterize the opposing views. They make a caricature out of the opposing views and perhaps represent Zwingli, Zwingli as advocating. It's just a simple metaphor, get over it. But among the historic views, Zwingli was the one that felt it necessary to press the mystical out. He felt this is going in the wrong direction, that this is a token and nothing more of Jesus' body and blood. It is a visual aid, and I don't mean in the Peter Vermigli or the Augustinian sense. I say that for those who are studied in these matters, and if time was not an issue, I would have loved to digress into that set of thoughts, but I opted not to draw that into today's study. But in a Zwinglian sense, and in some respects, everyone understands this, and it is a part of what we need to reflect on this afternoon, that clearly there is something visual that is happening today that is unusual over against the norm of what it is to gather in this place and to worship our Lord Jesus. In how many situations that Jesus calls us to, is there something visual that represents Him personally? There's nothing except for this ordinance. And perhaps... In the observance of that fact, Zwingli is wanting to make sure we don't drift back either into some sort of sacred perspective of the symbol that might in some configuration be justified with Old Testament types and shadows because they look toward Jesus. And you could appreciate these things in that sense that they look toward Jesus, whether it's the temple, the Holy of Holies, the shoe bread, the altar, the Ark of the Covenant. You understand what I'm saying? These things look toward Jesus. They are sacred symbols and not to be trifled with. But again, Zwingli advocated that this bread and this fruit of the vine are metaphorically spoken of by Jesus as representing his body and his blood and they are for the purpose of memory only. Just memory. Remember, Calvin said it's memory with a spiritual but not a local presence. Zwingli is more in the direction because he did not agree with Calvin. Okay, these, these three men were contemporary. Not exactly contemporary. I could give you their dates if you needed it, but they're not exactly contemporary in terms of they're all born on the same day and all died on the same day. But they were contemporary in especially in the sense that they and others representing them had these conversations robustly in the era that we're, we're talking about. Well, what should be the view that we hold, brothers and sisters? Should we be closest to Aquinas or Luther or Calvin or Zwingli? I'm not going to select from among the terminology that has been associated with these four men, not in the interest of starting something new, but in some sense, in the interest of not isolating ourselves to one traditional perspective and in the opportunity to enter into the rich conversation and allow the Holy Spirit to guide our thoughts and to make discrete choices among the various views, always bringing these things into the supervision of the scriptures and arriving at what I believe is a good articulation 
at least for starters, as it relates to how our memory should begin to get formulated. And I'm going to call this view dynamic remembrance. I happily relate to you, incidentally, that the terminology is not original with me. It is something that I've come across in my studies. I don't know that it's that popular. It may or may not be. With respect to the studies that I've been involved with, remember, of course, of the making of books, there is no end. That I can assure you. So when I say in the context of my studies, as a matter of fact, that's a fairly broad sweeping section out of the studies, but I also know that for every book I've read on this issue, there's 100, 200, 300, 400, literally 500 additional pieces of literature, to say the least. So rather than being just a grandstander, that sort of thing, I observe these realities and speak accordingly. So when I say something, it means what it means, and it's not colored in some exaggerated fashion. So the terminology of dynamic remembrance is something I have come across, and it suited my understanding quite well, so I'm making use of it. I don't mind pausing here for a moment, because it may be of interest to you and even others, that it most closely aligns with Calvin's perspective, if we are selecting among the four that I have given you just a bit ago. I want to draw you back to 1 Corinthians 11, the phrase that Jesus uses that translates, this do in remembrance of me, is the following in the Greek language. It is tuta poieta eistain, a main, anamnesin. The operative word as it relates to remembrance in that phrase is anamnesin. But I want to point out that the way the Greek construction presents the idea, sounds like this. This do in the me remembrance. And that is not just a function of Greek idiom, and that's the way they would always say it. There are other ways of saying that that formulates the thought in a different arrangement of words and gets at a different connotation. This do in the me Remembrance. It is a certain type of remembrance. It is a remembrance, most importantly, but it's attached to Jesus. It is a Jesus remembrance. The reason why that is significant is because there is a history behind the idea of remembrance. Indeed, as it relates to the Greek language, but even as the Greek language was used to translate the Old, Test the Old Testament scriptures, the Septuagint, and therefore, in the context of the Old Testament faith and covenant, there was already an idea of remembrance that Jesus was contrasting with, was utilizing as a basis by which to make his point. You see, the Greek term, anamnesis, itself does not refer to a simple recollection. It does not refer to just calling back to mind a fact or a figure, just a statistic that Jesus died once upon a time, roughly in A.D. 30, that this communion of the bread and cup was instituted on the 14th of Nisan in an upper room in Jerusalem in 1830. Oh, that's a fact. That's what we should remember. And then the subsequent events that 
followed his struggling Gethsemane and his arrest and his trial before Pontius Pilate and before Herod, his ultimate condemnation and whipping and scourging and abuse, and finally his crucifixion and his resurrection. And we know these facts. We have our Christology working as we partake of the communion of the bread and cup. Anamnesis, the Greek term itself, is more dynamic than that idea. There is a participatory element to the sort of memory that anamnesis is referring to when it's utilized in an arrangement such as occurs in 1 Corinthians 11 and in other places in the scriptures. There is a participatory and empathetic element to the memory. It is dynamic. Take, for example, the context of Hebrews chapter 10. Let's consider verses 1 through 3. We will discover that anamnesis is used in these two verses. And let's reflect on what is happening here and what the implications are. Verse 1, For the law, the Old Testament law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very things themselves, not the very image of the things themselves, could never with those sacrifices, the rams and the bulls and the lambs and so on, which they offered year by year continually, they could not make the worshipers, the comers, complete, perfect, free from sin. They could not free the Jew, the Jewish person, the young Jewish man, the young Jewish woman, the Jewish father and mother. They could not free them. Indeed, verse 2 goes on to say, for then, if that were true, if that actually happened, would those sacrifices not have ceased to be offered? If the sacrifice was offered and it had an efficacious effect such that you lost the sense of guilt and consciousness of sin, why would you offer as the argument will go forward here, we will read the text, but I want to finish my remarks. Why would you have a day of atonement at the end of the year for the entire Jewish populace who had during the year been in the habit, the godly among them, and even those that were just ritualistic and habitual throughout the year, they were offering sacrifice for sin, for what they knew were transgressions for what they knew were violations of the law, some relatively perfunctory. A woman had a baby and she had to offer a certain sacrifice to atone for blood defilement and so on. Listen to what the text says. If these sacrifices had been efficacious in their delivery to the heart of the believer, then why would they not have ceased to be offered? Because that the worshipers once purged should not have retained a consciousness of sin, a sense of guilt, a sense of a retained burden of not being right before God. But look what verse 3 says, but in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. You know what that event is? What is the event every year when the sins that you offered a sacrifice for will use December? It's not literally December, but if you offered a sacrifice on January, February, March, April, May, June, and then at the end of the year, 
What would be the event within which you remember and you feel and the guilt and the consciousness of that sin is brought back to your heart? It is the Day of Atonement. Do you see with me that this remembrance of sin that is being spoken of here has alongside of it a consciousness, an inner struggle. You may imagine somebody in your mind, a certain Jew is offered a sacrifice throughout the year and just sort of waltzes up to the outer perimeter of the temple when the goats are being offered on the Day of Atonement and he's just going through it perfunctorily and, um, and that's all there is to it. It's just a habit. You do it every year but you miss entirely what the Hebrew author is writing about and, and you bring your own, if you were to have this, which I hope you don't, but you bring your own hard, dull, Laodicean disposition to the reading of God's Word and you totally misunderstand the nature of even the relatively less attentive Jew. I'm saying to you on the Day of Atonement, Every single Jew who had already offered sacrifice for sin was waiting with bated breath, as it were, to see whether or not the high priest would successfully come out of the Holy of Holies, thereby indicating that God had accepted the offering of the Day of Atonement, that sacrifice. Because if that did not occur, then the sacrifice that had been previously offered throughout the year that could not possibly take away sins. It could not remove the memory. It could not take that burden. You would relive it. You would refeel it. And indeed, even the Day of Atonement, as the argument goes, could not fully remove it because you would have the question, why are we doing this year after year? Something isn't powerful enough to remove the memory. But the remembrance is what I'm pointing your hearts to. The way the word remembrance is used here, it is not a bland, just sort of factual thing. Hey, honey, what were my sins? Do you remember what they were over the last year? Oh, they were this, that. Oh, yeah, I kind of remember that. Well, glad that's in the past. No, this is a memory that is occurring on that day when you're revisiting the things that you did and the transgressions that you committed and realizing and reliving, as it were, realizing your guiltiness and the jeopardy of your soul in that moment. Allow me to read to you a description of what the Paschal celebration was all about. The Paschal celebration that was ordained in Exodus chapter 12. The very celebration, the Passover, if you will. The very celebration that Jesus and his disciples are joining in in the upper room on this night. Let us recall briefly, our author states, that the whole meaning of the Passover derived from its relation to the deliverance from Egypt. The Passover was not concerned only to recall or evoke this already distant event, just a sheer memory of a fact in the past. It was necessary each year for the event to become again a present actuality for each generation throughout the ages. According to the Mishnah, the oral tradition that accrued among the Jewish theologians, according to the Mishnah, quote, 
In every generation, a man must so regard himself as if he came forth himself out of Egypt. With that, I agree. With that, there is no doubt if you're following what is being said. I am bringing you back to the sort of memory that was already supposed to take place in the upper room when the Jewish believers gathered together to celebrate the Passover and Jesus and his 12 disciples were doing that this night, that which they had done three times previously in his public ministry. What was the nature of the memory? How should that memory be working? What does the idea of memory mean in the context of the Paschal meal, in the context of the Passover? And I fully agree, as I stated with the Mishnah statement, in every generation, however long the separation is between 1445 B.C. or thereabouts, and your particular date, even if it's 2021 A.D., now I'm not suggesting that the Passover should still be celebrated in the old Jewish covenantal sense, but I'm trying to make a point. So let's say then, change my remarks and say in 30 AD or thereabouts, when Jews from all over Israel were gathering together in Jerusalem and in Judea as families and friends and celebrating the Passover, they are supposed to see themselves as coming forth out of Egypt. Everyone had to participate in the great redemption, our author goes on to say. That which was done of old was accomplished in reality for each one of those who today enjoy the beneficial consequences. You must see how that event that is indeed historical, it isn't mystically actually reenacted, as if somehow when you gather in your home to celebrate the Passover meal, your home immediately becomes Goshen. It is transferred into the homes within Goshen. And somehow your father becomes Moses, or Moses is a real presence inside of your father, or something like that. But also it's not to just be, hey, this is just a memory. This is a fact that happened a bunch of years ago. Anybody ever hear about this fact? Oh, it's fact time again. You got any statistics? Let's think about the fact that once upon a time, a long time ago, Jews used to be in Egypt. Did you know that about your history? It's kind of like doing your genealogy, you know? Do you know where you came from? Well, I came from way back when, from wherever. Gaul. Oh, that's interesting. But I'm not empathetically thinking about what the Gauls went through and how they got to where they were and French history and Canadian history and all of that. I'm not entering into that and seeing its relevance in any dynamic sense, in defining sense. That's not the nature of my memory. It's a fact. But the Passover was not to be celebrated that way. There's a memory element to the Passover, to the anamnesis within the Passover that is similar to that memory we already looked at in Hebrews chapter 10 where you are empathetically, participatorily involved. All were saved on the night of the great exodus and all were welcomed into the fellowship of the holy people is what they should be remembering. The Paschal ritual was the instrument of this teaching, our author goes on to say. It placed the guests again in the same conditions as the Israelites on that great night. Unleavened bread was eaten. Bitter herbs were consciously chewed in order to share in the bitter plight of the fathers who were slaves in Egypt, and so on and so on. Behind these different practices, there was one intention. The past 
reaches and joins the present. The acts of God for His people are not buried in time. What was done at that time was done for the multitudes who would succeed that particular generation. And when you're remembering, you're remembering that what happened on that Passover night cannot be isolated to time. While it doesn't exactly mystically somehow in, in an occult fashion, and I use that term in the sense of its classical meaning of hiddenness, some mysterious, untouchable sort of way that we're supposed to work ourselves into and align our thoughts and our emotions to, that that event in a Barthian sort of way stretches throughout all of time and becomes the real logos for the moment and those sorts of configurations. No, we understand that there was a historic moment when that original Passover took place, just like we understand that there is not a real enactment of a fresh sacrifice every time we have the communion of the bread and cup. And nor do we need to conceive of a mystical presence of Jesus in this room in some very odd fashion alongside of the bread or some other way about that. Just as I said, you could understand if you were a Jew in 30 AD and celebrating the Passover that we are not in Goshen. We are many generations past the time of Moses. We are now in Israel. But that event is defining for who we are and what we should be and how we got there. And I was in that event. In a very real sense, I was in that event. Not mystically, not really, but dynamically, participatorily. I remember empathetically what happened that night. And I know that my own status is very much invested or could even state it differently. That event was very much invested in my status such that what happened in the upper room on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, when this ordination was established by Jesus Christ, the ordinance of the communion of the bread and cup, my dear brother and sister, it was done with an investment into your present standing. The acts of God do not cease to be contemporary and active. His word is dynamic, brothers and sisters. Jesus' actions in some sense, cannot be bound to time, though we do not extract the time element out of it, once again, in a Bartian overemphasis. History does not exhaust grace. Are you with me? History does not exhaust grace. This is what it is to remember. If the distance of history and the familiarity of having done this before in the passage of time renders the communion of the bread and cup less effective as the years roll by, then you are not remembering to remember. And perhaps because you don't know how to start your mind in the proper direction to start with, you need to realize that Jesus is calling you to a dynamic participatory form of memory. We are all united in the deliverance that Jesus accomplished on that night in the events that are associated with that night in the upper room when he established this ordinance. Just as, and is true, with the God-fearing Jews of our time, I'm not getting into what their standing is vis-a-vis -vis not receiving the Messiah. Please understand what I'm stating and what I'm not stating. You can't cover everything in one message. But I'm saying, as is true with the Orthodox, God-fearing Jews, for as much as lieth in them, 
in terms of how God-fearing can they be. But I'm trying to say God that seeth the hearts knows that some Jews still gather and they celebrate the Passover and they are united in the deliverance that happened in Moses' day that had their well-being as an objective. They unite together around that table and they unite with all the Jews over time that have experienced the benefits of the deliverance that occurred on that night. And that's why they're doing this. And they're not doing it because they just thought it was a good idea to repeat this ceremony. They're doing it because God himself said, this do in remembrance of these events. Among the many witnesses to the God-ordained nature of the Passover, I give you just that which is found in Exodus, which is the foundation of it all, Exodus 12. And I read to you verses 26 and 27. There we are told, Moses writing, speaking, and it shall come to pass when your children shall say to you, what do these things mean? What does this service, this ceremony, this ordinance? Indeed, we could say where the King James has service. What mean ye by this service? We could say, what mean ye by this remembrance? What is this remembrance all about? Then you shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians. And he delivered our forefathers out of slavery. We may have in some respects had the prospects of being a nation, but we were a nation enslaved and therefore for all practical purposes, no nation to speak of. But the reason why we are remembering this is because God Almighty heard our cries and looked upon our bondage and he visited his people. And he moved with a mighty hand and he brought salvation to our forefathers and we are the recipients of that now. And without that event, we would not be here. We partake in that. We remember that event empathetically. And all the people are to bow their heads, Exodus 12 says, and worship because they have this memory that they don't take for granted trivially. Now think about this. Bringing your attention back to the record of the institution of what we call the communion of the bread and cup that is recorded in some particular, or in some particulars, the events themselves in all four Gospels, but only in Luke's Gospel is the phrase, do this in remembrance of me, given to the reader. And as you know, Paul extracts that witness of the Lord's statements out of Luke, and it's that which he chooses to bring to the attention of the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So I'm bringing your attention back to, to that upper room. If time allowed once again, it would be an interesting exercise to, through language, erect within your vision and in your attention precisely the events that took place and that necessarily had to occur in order, in order for that event to be a true Seder, a truly ordered Passover meal. It's called the Seder because it's ordered. There is a proper way to do this. And I cannot digress at the moment, but there is evidence in the New Testament and you who read your Bibles, you will recognize that Jesus was certainly following 
Not so much the traditions of the elders, of course, but he was following sacred order. And there was order. There was order in Exodus chapter 12 and in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and so on about how you go about this. And I am sharing with you that right at the point in the Seder, in the celebration of the Passover remembrance, right at the part when the Seder says the Father who is leading the Passover meal and he reads the various appropriate liturgical, if you will, features of this celebration, right when the Father is supposed to say, this is the bread of affliction that our forefathers ate in the land of Egypt. Jesus, who was no doubt prior to that, following the order of the Seder, and in no essential fashion, outside of just the general tensions of the context of the times, I realized there was tension in the upper room, but in terms of the celebration of the Passover, it was following the regular order of events. One of the disciples, probably not Jesus, usually the father, the head of the home, would have to go to the temple to have the lamb sacrificed before bringing it back home. So certainly one of the disciples carried out that duty. We don't know which two did or which one did. We have the record of the two disciples finding the man who offers them the upper room and things along those lines, but they prepared for this event. And I'm stating to you that Jesus, as he officiated on this night and was the father figure among his disciples and followed the regular order of how the Passover meal should unfold at the point when all the disciples were expecting him to say the long known words, the repeated words of liturgical language that everybody knew, this is the bread of affliction that our forefathers ate in the land of Egypt. Jesus suddenly departs from the expected words, and in their place he says, this is my body, which is broken for you. This is my body, which goes under affliction for you. This is my body which takes the place of your experience of long passages of time in affliction for your sins and rebellion. This is my body, which is broken for you. Now, do this and remember me. Never before was that ever said in a Passover. In all these thousands of years, never was the point of memory changed. In the context of the Passover conversation, and Jesus takes the bread and does not say the liturgical language, and then he takes the bread and turns its referent to himself. And this, no doubt, was a tremendous surprise to the disciples that I'm sure they did not even fully process while they were in that upper room. I want to ask you now, having, I think, established that this notion of remembrance, given the sacredness of the context within which Jesus uttered this language. My dear brother and sister, is it clear to your hearts, young ones who may not be as conversant with the scope of your Bible, is it clear to your heart that this communion of the bread and cup was not just something Jesus said on the seashore one day? It wasn't something that Jesus had a meal because this is my last time together with you, so let's have a meal. They were celebrating the Passover and the idea of taking bread, the idea of remembering something, 
It happened in the august context of the Passover meal. And Jesus says, do this now and remember me. It's so interesting that he doesn't exactly point to the lamb. Isn't that interesting? It says, this is the lamb. Eat this lamb in remembrance of me. He uses the bread. Certainly he is the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And I must yet observe the limitations of time and not unravel the implications of that fact that he doesn't point to the lamb. Certainly Christ is our Passover lamb that is sacrificed for us. But he doesn't use a living lamb as the emblem of his remembrance because, well, you would be sacrificing lambs afresh every time we gather together. And that would distort the self, or I should say the once for all sacrifice of Christ. And also the lamb was sure, was, was simply and purely a substitute. But Jesus takes the bread of affliction and says, this is my body. This that you're used to associating with the bread of affliction, the unleavened bread eaten with bitter herbs to remind you of the 400 plus years that your fathers went through hard bondage to the point where they finally had enough of their sinful ways and cried out, at least in some measure, for deliverance. And God, in His mercy, heard their cries and sent them a deliverer. And even in spite of a retaining of hardness of heart, He successfully brought them out, as He has with many of us. Amen. And Jesus is saying, when you partake of this bread, you remember that my body went through affliction so that you could be delivered. Now, I want to ask you something. Again, in the interest of remembering to remember well, so that we partake worthily. If one of the central callings of this ordinance, I do not argue it's the only dimension to this ordinance. There is no doubt in my spirit other observations could properly be observed, preached on, and emphasized. But all students of God's Word that love the Lord Jesus Christ and have the Spirit within them, they know that remembering the Lord Jesus is certainly of the essence of this ordinance. And so I ask you, what was the primary focus in Jesus' heart when He instituted this ordinance? What I'm asking at this point, dear brethren, is along the lines of what was Jesus' motive? What was he thinking? What was he after? Jesus is the one who, after all, said, do this in remembrance of me. I've already confirmed that that is language within a context, all of which is just teeming with vigor and energy and import and augustness and substance. Amen? It is in no sense trivial, certainly not for Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed when he himself is the bread and all the rest of it. Please understand first how real that is. So it is a very important question because Jesus was not willy-nilly or ad hoc about this. When he said, do this in remembrance of me, or I could state it differently when he said, do this in remembrance of me. Or when he said by implication, since it's an imperative, you do this in remembrance of me. I'm asking you, my brother and my sister, this question. What do you think was the primary focus in Jesus' 
heart? What was his motive? What was he after? Was he asking you to remember him for himself? For the benefit, primarily, to be remembered himself? So that we would arrive at appreciation for what Jesus did on our behalf? Or was it for his people? I want to say to you, though I will be building out the case more fully as we go forward, but I want to suggest to you that the answer to that question is by no means easy, depending on where you're standing. Which is to say, I understand you can stand from a certain perspective, and for example, you can say he's talking about himself. And that is true. He is saying, do this in remembrance of me. Not in remembrance of any other Savior. As, as Paul says, was Paul crucified for you? Was Brother William crucified for you? There's too much remembering of the priest and his magic ability to do the hocus pocus in certain contexts. So certainly Jesus is saying, do it in remembrance of me. He is very clear that he is the Savior and no one else is. He knows that. And he's not ashamed, if you will, to say it. But then from another perspective, as I will be emphasizing in a moment, that that doesn't exactly work. So, for example, when I said suggestively what was going on in his heart, when he said, do this in remembrance of me, was what was occurring in his heart something along the lines of the consciousness of the pain and the suffering and all of the service that he had rendered on their behalf, and he wants them to appreciate it. Do this in remembrance of me. I'm eliciting your observation, your attention. I'm eliciting your memory, your ability to not forget what I have done appreciate what I have done. That's what I'm thinking on this moment. Was that forefront in his spirit is what I'm asking you. When Jesus says to his disciples at the table, do this in remembrance of me, I ask for your reflection in his spirit going out to them. Was it primarily self-centered, which would amount to, I know who I am. I know I am the Lamb of God. I know what I am doing on your behalf. I know what I constitute in your redemptive story. And I am thinking about myself and my role. And I'm saying, do this and remember me. And I, my mind and my spirit is filled with most directly who I am. My self-awareness of my own definition. Is it primarily, in that sense, self-aware and centered? Or is it servant-centered? And the do this in remembrance of me is a remark out to the disciples to serve them yet again on this night, certainly utilizing himself since there is no other Savior available and there is no other light and truth and salvific power anywhere in the universe, let alone the upper room. So certainly the referent is himself, but the thought and the motive in his spirit is yet again a servant looking to the needs of his disciples and saying, it'll be good if you remember me. This will be good for you. If it is primarily the latter, and by primarily what I mean, if I may put it this way, since he is theanthropic, what I'm wanting to say is that 
there is a genuineness within the heart of Christ. There is a humanness, if you will. I'm not trying to disassociate it from the divine, but I'm, I'm trying to stir your thoughts. And I'm saying that if what I've just described to you that I will seek to substantiate here more fully, that, that that which was in Jesus' spirit, are you with me? For example, when Jesus said, I thirst, was he saying that relative to himself? or relative to the thieves that were around him so they would get some water too, or relative just to fulfill scripture, I would say it's arguable the most forefront thing that drove that statement was his own thirst. The fact that it fulfilled scripture was another thing, and if any thief, which we have no indication that anybody else got the blessing of sour vinegar, if that is a blessing, that any of them got it, we have no indication of it. Do you hear with me the contrast? When he said, I thirst... What is happening within his spirit, what is forefront in his being, is the awareness of his own self and his own need. Not in a sinful, selfish way, but like when you scratch because you've got an itch. You follow what I'm saying? But when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, is he filled with awareness of himself at that moment and what the prospects are in front of him and the role that he's playing and all that he's giving for them and all that they have yet to appreciate about him, which is certainly a very valid and necessary uh, set of things to accomplish. But what is forefront in Jesus' mind, I'm asking you, and I'm suggesting to you that what was forefront, not in the absence of the other, but what was forefront... Do this in remembrance of me. And I'm saying this because I'm thinking about you. And I'm thinking about how this will benefit you and how this will serve you. If that is the case, dear brothers and sisters, then I say with you, or I say to you, that remembering to remember, which is our duty, does not begin to be fulfilled until you know how to direct that memory properly in and toward the intention the primary intention with which Jesus gave the instruction, which can be expressed as a communal remembrance. One could even say a bi-directional remembrance. I've already used the language of a participatory remembrance. And I've also used the language of empathetic remembrance. Let me first bring to your attention and establish with some texts what you already know instinctively, knowing the Lord Jesus as you do, but let's remind our hearts of some things to nail this point home, that it is highly unlikely, though justified from our perspective, but it's highly unlikely, given what we know about Jesus, that when he said, do this in remembrance of me, that it was primarily to be heard, or it was primarily said by him, with thoughts about himself forefront in his mind and to be understood in that way. Now, if you will pardon me, I would argue, not necessarily everywhere, but I would say it is certainly often the case that the way in which the memory effort takes place is very much along the lines where the emphasis is remember Jesus for who Jesus is and who he was in himself, in some sense, you might say, this is the occasion to forget about everything that Jesus does for us and just remember who he is in himself. Do this in remembrance of Jesus, what he is in himself. And I'm saying to you that that's so close and yet so far. 
I'm saying to you that you're not totally beside the point, but until you align your memory energies under the guidance of the Holy Spirit into the right track, you may be falling short of the way your precious Savior was beseeching you to remember Him and what His own motive was. And if there's some sense in which you're giving all of the attention simply to Him, you may be defeating the very purpose of this ordinance. Please allow me to explain. There was an occasion, as a matter of fact, in Jesus' experience, when the language of drinking a cup was referred to. It happens in Matthew chapter 20. This is nearing the end of Jesus' ministry. And a woman whom we can only call, in the absence of knowing her given name, Mrs. Zebedee, along with her two sons, at least two of them, who were also disciples of Jesus, one by the name of James, one by the name of John, they come to Jesus, and the three of them are beseeching Christ for the privilege of James sitting on one side of Jesus' throne and John sitting on the other side of Jesus' throne. And Jesus says, as he responds to Zebedee's mother, Zebedee's wife, James and John's mother, but he is speaking to James and John, and he says, are you able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of? And then as he begins to speak more fully, dear brethren, Jesus says, among the Gentiles, we have a power structure where men rule over other men and they exercise that superiority in self-interest. But he says, it shall not be so among you. He says, whoever is the greatest among you, let him be your minister. And then in the 28th verse, Jesus says, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. If you soak in what you're hearing at that moment, and you recognize that this, indeed, in Luke's gospel, is associated directly with the events of the evening that we're centering our attention on, the evening in the upper room in Jerusalem, then you see Jesus is saying, the Son of Man did not come to be ministered unto. And therefore, when he says, do this in remembrance of me, from his side, the motive is absent, the interest of being ministered to, which sounds something like, please appreciate me. I am not stating that it doesn't matter whether we appreciate Jesus. I am not stating if you ask Jesus point blank, should we appreciate you? I know he would certainly say, yes, you must appreciate me if you would have eternal life. But I'm not asking that question, I'm saying what was the driving force within his heart when he said, do this in remembrance of me? And I would say it's in keeping what Jesus, with what Jesus said in Matthew 20 and verse 28. He is not saying it as someone who is seeking ministry to be brought back to him, but in order for him to minister to others and to see ransom and deliverance and salvation applied to their lives. In Philippians chapter 2, we are told, look not every man on his own things. Do you recognize with me that a certain person could say, do this in remembrance of me? 
Many of us could say and perhaps have said, and I hope you're tracking with me, you could use the language, do this in remembrance of me. Remember me. And you would be stating it, whether you felt justifiably or not, but you would certainly be stating it in order for others to recognize things that pertain to yourself. But Philippians says, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And the very next verse says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Do you think that the mind that was in Christ Jesus, that was characterized by not primarily looking on his own things, that while he was aware of the things that pertain to him that were beneficial to others, that he is the bread of life, that his blood is drink indeed. While he was aware of that, he was not simply looking on his own things. He was also looking on the things of others. So when he says, do this in remembrance of me, it is not simply calling your attention to empathetically and appreciatorily or appreciatively think about the Lord Jesus. From his side, he is thinking about you. There's an occasion in John chapter 8 when the Jews disrespect Christ and call him a Samaritan that has a devil. And Jesus responds and says, I don't have a devil. I honor my father, but you dishonor me. And I seek not my own glory. Do you think that the Lord Jesus, who had such a heart that is so different than our hearts naturally are, is so different than any of our hearts until the Holy Spirit does such a deep, deep work that you become, by character, one who does not look for your own glory and your own attention, but you're constantly looking out to others to minister to others, and you have their interest in mind. This was the mind and the heart of the Lord Jesus that is so foreign to us that when we hear the language of do this in remembrance of me, if we're not careful, we will interpret that as Jesus saying, remember me, remember what I did for you. And someone might say, well, I heard a pastor once say that that is what we should do. And I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. I'm saying what was the motive from Christ's side so that you can align yourself with the proper way to remember. Because certainly it is the case that Jesus suffered these things and then entered into his glory. And there is a glory that we should understand. But Jesus, when he said, do this in remembrance of me, was not saying it from a heart that was seeking attention, seeking glory, seeking recognition, seeking acknowledgement, seeking validation. Are you hearing what I'm saying? I'm saying that was not his motive. And that's important to understand. Concerning the work of Christ, in Titus chapter 2 and verse 14, we read, Jesus gave himself for us that he might redeem us. In other words, among the many, many passages that could be referred to along these lines, what we learn is the whole redemptive effort was outward looking. It was for us. He gave himself for us. I'm asking you, do you think of what occurred on this evening when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me as the possible exception to the general trajectory of his life when his entire life was thinking of the other, but now there was an appropriate moment to turn the attention on himself, to elicit sympathy, to elicit 
empathy and appreciation. And he's saying, now you should remember me, remember me. Oh, brothers and sisters, my soul so desires that you can understand what is being shared with you today. That the what might appear to be the subtle distinction in perspective makes all sorts of difference in understanding Jesus and what this ordinance is intended to accomplish in your life. That while we should have an empathetic love for Jesus and an appreciation that knows no bounds, and He would be the first to support that because that's health for your soul. From His side, the memory is in your interest. It's in your interest to remember Him. He's wanting to remember, He's wanting you to remember Him for the salvific benefit that you will derive out of what this dynamic memory is all about. Jesus, indeed, in the upper room, made the following remarks prior to the institution of the language of the communion of the bread and cup. Jesus said during the celebration, or, or I should say during the event of the washing of the disciples' feet, he said, you call me master and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. Do you recognize with me Christ's ability to point to himself and to acknowledge what is the truth as it relates to himself? You call me master and Lord, and I am. But then he goes on to say, if I then, your Lord and master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example. I've given you an example. What was the example? The example that Jesus was doing that very night was serving others, was looking out to their own interests and thinking about what would benefit you. What can I yet do? Though this is the end of my earthly ministry and I face the ordeal of all that happens in the in the events of his suffering and death, but he is thinking of others and washing their feet. He's thinking out from himself toward them. In Luke chapter 22, Luke records a set of events like those in Matthew chapter 20 that we referred to earlier that involved James and John. I'm wanting you to know that in Luke's account, my dear brothers and sisters, a strife, emerges among the disciples, listen to me carefully, after the institution of the bread and cup, after the institution of the bread and cup, a strife emerges among the disciples around the question of who would be considered the greatest. And in that context, Jesus makes the following remark in the 27th verse of Luke 22. Jesus says, whether is greater. In other words, which is greater? The one who sits at the table and eats or the one who serves? He says, is not the one who sits at the table? But then he says these important words, but I am among you as he that serves. If Luke has the order correct, and whenever this event happened relative to the a stat, a relative to the ordination of the communion of the bread and cup, in that same night, I am showing you the heart of Christ. What is, what is alive and cognizant and perspicuous to his mind, I'm among you as one who is serving. I am saying to you, 
these awarenesses that I'm presenting to your minds and hearts that are among so many establish the fact that when he says, do this in remembrance of me, it is not being spoken from a heart that has decided to relax and take a break and turn the attention on himself and breathe out and say, I've done everything now, remember me. It is still being done of one who is among them serving, thinking of the others and say, do this in remembrance of me because this will be good for you. Remember with me a couple closing observations before in this section before we get to the application with which we will finish this message. But remember with me that beautiful remark about love. 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 5 says, Love does not seek its own. Now, my brothers and sisters, I personally would not fault Christ if it was absolutely demonstrable that when Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, that the foremost thought in his heart was, I must draw your attention to me or even I'm human after all. Remember when he asked Peter, James and John, watch and pray with me. He wanted it. At that moment for himself, I'm not saying selfishly, but as a human, he was struggling. He really wanted them to watch and pray. That is true. But I'm saying to you, when he says, do this in remembrance of me, that language and that event, it does not involve someone who is at this moment seeking their own. Dear brothers and sisters, it may aid all of our hearts if we recognize how many times we have done such things. When after a season of suffering and difficulty and hardship that you've gone through, then you state something to the effect of, now remember what I've gone through, what I did for you, remember. For example, Paul said, remember that for the space of three years, I warned you with tears. He's saying in some sense, remember that I served you in that way. But I'm saying when Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, he is not thinking about himself. He is not empty-minded. He is not so idealistic that he doesn't understand the value of the one he's pointing to, but he's saying this in the, for the benefit and the interest of others. He's not seeking his own. As a matter of fact, and I give you this as a final observation in supporting this point, we are told in Ephesians chapter 5 that Christ loved his church and he gave himself for it. I am saying to you that when Jesus said to his church effectively in the upper room when he took, when he took the bread that would stand for the bread of affliction and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. This eat and do this in remembrance of me that at that moment Jesus is speaking as a husband who loves his wife, who is looking after and out for his wife and is still giving himself to his bride. I have many points of participation to share with your hearts. But given the length of this study, I will only concentrate in a certain degree on these various points. But this is the application portion of that which we have established thus far in the teaching. The teaching itself will be entitled Points of Participation. And what we have set before you was purposely presented in order to establish a certain way of remembering so that we come to this ordinance and not simply think about Jesus as 
just who he is in himself as if you would simply view him upon the cross, affixed to the Roman instrument of death. I'm not saying you shouldn't envision that in some sense, but I'm saying you don't simply do that because that was not Jesus' intention. He wants this remembrance to be dynamic, to be participatory. You say participatory. Does that mean that I am somehow offering myself up to God as well in some sort of salvifically meaningful fashion? The answer to that question is absolutely not. Only Christ is the perfect Lamb of God who can offer His life and be accepted. He is the beloved Son in whom God is well pleased and no one else holds that spot. He is the unique Son and the perfect sacrifice. But nonetheless, dear brothers and sisters, I'm saying that there are many other points of participation that Jesus would draw our attention to when we partake of the communion of the bread and cup so that we remember Him and we participate in what His person stands for and accomplished and did and set before us as an example where to participate when we remember, remember in a participatory way. Some of the participation is more beneficial and at a distance. It's that which we participate in, as I will mention to you in a moment, sympathetically and didactically. Well, let's take that up at this time. Some of the participatory memories are to be entered into sympathetically. This is almost close to just knowing what Jesus did and having the right ideas and the right teaching on it. For example, the necessity of Jesus' death. When we do this in remembrance of Jesus, remember what this teaches us about the necessity of his death. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane said, if it were possible, let this cup pass from me. But it was not possible for our redemption to be accomplished unless Jesus go to the cross. Remember that when you partake, the necessity of Jesus' death. Jesus said the Son of Man must suffer many things and be slain in Luke 9, 22. In John chapter 12, Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. So in order for the fruit to be distributed among the nations, Jesus had to die. Jesus said that he is the good shepherd that gives his life for the sheep. Certainly many other passages teach the same thing, but I'm saying to you, when you remember the Lord Jesus, let's start with this. Let's do this in a participatory way, in an empathetic way. Let's remember the sympathetic, didactic starting point of the necessity of Jesus' death. Let your heart be drawn into that. That the broken body of Jesus was was absolutely necessary or we could not be saved. Then remember the nature of Jesus' death. His broken body and His spilled blood. Indeed, it's the very language that Jesus uses when he says, this do in remembrance of me. He says, this is my body which is broken for you. The term broken that is used in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 24 is klomenon, and it means to be disjointed. This is my body that is disjointed for you. And it harkens back to Psalm 22, where we read in this messianic 
psalm, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. And thou hast brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can tell all my bones. They look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them. They cast lots upon my vestures, my garment. Isaiah 52 has language similar to this in the 14th and 15th verse. It says, many were astonished to see the suffering Messiah. His visage, his face was so marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of man. And then the 15th verse says, so shall he sprinkle many nations. When we do this in remembrance of Jesus, we start with this empathetic entering in of realizing as it pertains to us, as it pertains to lost humanity, the absolute necessity of Jesus' death, and then remember with it the nature of what that death entailed, that in order for the nations to be sprinkled with his blood, how did that blood become accessible? It was through this awful ordeal of crucifixion and all that that entailed. And once again, if time allowed, It would be so wonderful to go through the memory, dear brothers and sisters, of what crucifixion entails, not for some sort of gothic, grotesque exercise, but to just appreciate, dear brothers and sisters, what the Lord Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. I remember in a section from Thomas Boston, the Scottish theologian, who speaks so beautifully about these events, I recall him pointing out that after Jesus was nailed to the cross, while the cross was on the ground, and Jesus was um, placed lying down upon the cross as both he and the cross were on the ground. But now that he's affixed to the cross, when the Roman soldiers, lacking any empathy, and rather quite charged, as we know, in the other forms of abuse they visited upon Jesus, to mock him and to disregard the king of the Jews, as they thought, quote-unquote, the king of the Jews. They would have moved that cross up quickly and with jerks and with movements, and then they probably would have taken that cross and they would have put it into its position with a thud. And as gravity and the shaking of that event visited visited itself on Jesus' body, his joints would have gone out. And that is just one recollection among many, many. And again, the language of Isaiah 52, his face was so marred that you couldn't even recognize he was a man. Do this in remembrance of me. But not just for me. Are you hearing me? Not, not, because I want you to see my face again. I want you to know what happened when they stood the cross up. I'm not saying that's irrelevant for us, but I'm saying that's not what he was saying. But he is saying, remember, I had to die. The Son of God had to die. Or you couldn't be forgiven of your sins. Remember that before you go sin again and crucify the Son of God afresh. The Son of God asked his Father, could this be taken away? And the answer was no, not if men would be saved. And then remember the nature of this death. 
This is the consequence of sin. This is the horror of sin. Do this for your own benefit in remembrance of me. Remember what this looked like to benefit your own soul. And then also in the direction of this participatory, communal, empathetic memory, this dynamic memory, I move now from the sympathetic and didactic elements of this to the pragmatic, the pragmatic. In other words, seeing the program of God advanced. I just share with you under this heading, the new covenant. Jesus says, this is the blood of the new covenant. The book of Hebrews says that Jesus has obtained a more excellent ministry because he is the mediator of a better covenant, which is established upon better promises. Do you hear? Jesus said, this is the blood of the new covenant. So when he says, do this in remembrance of me, when you enter into this with a participatory, dynamic form of memory, you remember programmatically as it relates to the advancement of God's divine plan. What occurred on that night was an advancement of the plan of God that brought the people of God into the new covenant. The plan of God went forward and you need to get with the program. A lot of Jews need to hear, you need to get with the program. And we need to understand you're not under the old covenant. All of you that observe days and times and years, I'm afraid of you that you're not remembering this in a participatory fashion, in a dynamic way. Remember the way in which the program of God has moved forward for your benefit and get out from under the shadows and get into the light of Jesus Christ and the ministry of the Spirit and the freedom and the fullness and the power of the living Spirit of God. And then, energetically, I give you this in closing. Not just sympathetically, not just programmatically, but energetically. Do this in remembrance of me. There's a certain energy. There's a certain spiritual power and a referent to spiritual benefit. When Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, He's not just saying, think of me on the cross. Envision my face. See the marred being. Recognize the abuse that I endured. I'm not saying that's beside the point, but I'm saying that's not His only point. And I would even argue that's not His primary motive. What He's pointing to is... He wants you to remember Him because all of the things that He accomplished in going to the cross that provides spiritual inheritance and weaponry and energy and spiritual power, things like the epistle to the Ephesians speak of, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. There are spiritual blessings for you. It isn't inappropriate. In fact, it's in keeping with what the interest of this ordinance is all about. Certainly remember the Lord Jesus. Remember what He went through on your behalf. But brothers and sisters, you don't remember properly if you don't remember dynamically. If you don't remember and realize the energetic benefits that come to you. If you don't appreciate the heavenly blessings that were brought to you in Christ Jesus. Because please remember with me again, when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Jesus is not one who ministers to himself. He's not solely interested primarily about himself. He's always looking out 
toward his bride and trying to benefit his bride. And he wants you to know what his death has provided for you. He wants you to know that. That's the whole reason why he went through what he did. He didn't go through this just to build a reputation. I know he has a name that is above every name and that is proper and right. But I'm trying to tell you the entire ordeal of what Jesus went through as the Messiah, as the son of David. He went through in the service of the Father for the benefit of the elect, for the good of his bride, like the best husband you could ever imagine. And then 10 times, thousand times, a million times better. He gave himself in love for you. And when he says, do this in remembrance of me, he wants you to remember what this stands for. Remember who he is and recognize the benefits that derive to his bride, what he left for you, the inheritance you obtain, that you are now made partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. And Peter, like with Paul, will say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again onto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, which is reserved in heaven for you or kept by the power of God through faith onto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations. Oh, dear brothers and sisters, suppose that you are in heaviness through manifold temptations. Then partake of the communion of the bread and cup and realize that Jesus himself experienced not just a trial, not just a difficulty, but the ordeal that was entailed in the crucifixion and all that transpired with his arrest, with his false accusation with an unjust court, with the abuse and the mockery of others, with many standing beside Judas first and foremost and others asking themselves, why does this man not defend himself? Why does God not deliver him? And Jesus, as a lamb, dumb before his slaughterers, did not open his mouth, went through the entire ordeal. And Paul says that Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me until I come again. And so among the things that you can remember, something that as the Lord allows, we will develop in a subsequent study. Perhaps you're thankful I'm not trying to do it this afternoon, but we will develop that particular thought. It will be entitled, Remembering Suffering and Anticipating Glory. That's part of what Jesus gave to his bride when he says, remember me when you're in suffering. Remember me. I suffered too, but I have now entered into my glory and you continue to remember this ordinance during your time of trial and suffering I want to remind you every time you partake of the body and blood of Christ that I suffered too but I'm here as your husband who has reached the right hand of the Father ahead of time, that I am now in glory remember me this works out if you stay faithful to the Father but I want you to hear just this truth about the energetic application of what this entails, I select among the many things and for closing, the remembrance that can be associated with the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus as a part of our inheritance. The blood of Jesus as a part of our spiritual warfare. 
The blood of Jesus as a part of that which we should implement when we have the trial of our faith, which is much more precious than that of gold, though it be tried with fire, that this trial of faith may not defeat us, but might be found on to praise and honor and glory at the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, at which time he will again drink of the fruit of the vine, which on that night he did not. While the others did, he did not. He said, you do it, but I won't partake of it again until I partake of it in glory with you. Which again entails other things that recommend the memory to thinking about the future and our reunion with Jesus Christ in glory. And I'm saying to you, the blood of Jesus. One of the primary things he pointed to when he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. I'm saying, don't you see the blood spilling on his side? Don't you see the blood coming out of his hands and feet? See that blood. But he wants you to remember, not just so you can say, oh, Jesus, you were bloodied, weren't you? I remember. And when the nails went through, I remember. And you think Jesus saying, yes, I wanted you to appreciate me. Please remember that. Do you know how hard that was? And I'm not saying we should be indifferent to that. And I'm not saying Jesus could care less that those things were there. But I'm saying in his heart, as one who loves, as our beautiful Savior, as this beautiful Lord Jesus, when he says, do this in remembrance of me. He wants you to understand when you see that blood, know how that benefits you. Remember what I've done for you. Remember the blessings that have come your way because of what I've done. I want you to remember what I did. I want you to enter in again so that you revive the precious treasures that are yours, my bride. I want you to open up your chest. I want you to open up your dowry. I want you to dig into the jewels and do this and remember what your husband did for you. We're told about the blood of Jesus. Leviticus 17 and verse 11 states generically, states the general truth that the life of the flesh is in the blood. So in order for Jesus to give his life, he had to shed his blood. Hebrews 9 and verse 22 expands upon that and says, without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. And then this beautiful picture that is given to us in Exodus chapter 12, that just as when Jesus took the bread of affliction on the Passover night, when he, if he were following the Seder, would have said, this is the bread of affliction that represents the suffering of your fathers in Egypt. He said, this is my body, as we referred to earlier. Now I want you to think about that alteration of reflection when I read these words to you out of Exodus 12 and verse 13. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague will not come upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. Jesus is saying, this is my blood. Now I'm changing the reference to me. Use this blood. Use my blood. And remember me. And remember the value of this blood that is of a blood of a better covenant and speaketh better things, not only than that of Abel, but also that of the Passover lambs that occurred in the homes of Goshen. Do this in remembrance of me. You're failing if you don't appreciate the dynamic power of the blood on your behalf. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 13 says that we were sometimes afar off, but now if you remember Jesus and you remember his shed blood, you can be made nigh to God by the blood of Christ. 
In Ephesians 1 and verse 7, we are told that you can have redemption through His blood. If you are far off, if you have a sense of guilt, if your mind is still under the burden of dead works, you can have your conscience cleansed from dead works. You can have redemption if you remember Jesus by remembering the power of that shed blood. In other words, don't just envision a figure of Christ on the cross in a bloody spectacle. When Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, he was not saying, oh, appreciate that picture before your eyes. He was saying most prominently, see that blood and understand what I did for you. Do this. This is good for you. Remember me. This will benefit you. I am Jesus. I shed the perfect blood. There's redemption in this blood. There is the becoming nigh unto God through this blood. First John 1 John 1.7 says if you're struggling in some area of your life where God has brought light and you're resisting that light, that's why you're not in fellowship with God. But as we commune in this ordinance this afternoon, you can remember that Jesus Christ will cleanse you from all sin if you will appeal to His blood, if you will repent Brothers and sisters of your sins, don't say that you have not sinned and make God a liar. Reckon, confess before God those things in your life that are not according to the full light of God, for He is in the light and knows where you are not walking with Him when you walk in some form of darkness. But the beautiful language of 1 John 1, 7 is as you remember the Lord Jesus, remember that His blood can cleanse you from all sin. And if now you have come nigh to God, you've experienced redemption through this life that Jesus gave in the giving of his blood, and he shed this blood for the remission of sins. If you are seeking to walk in the light and you are being cleansed by this precious blood day by day as you mourn your failures and you go to God and you ask him to forgive you from all, un- to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, to forgive your sins and you confess your sins knowing that he is faithful and just to forgive you all your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness and you long to walk with him in the light. You long for your garment to be made white and to be purged by the blood of the Lamb. Then the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 10 and verses 19 and 20 that we can then come boldly into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way. My brothers and sisters, remember me. Jesus is saying, do this in remembrance of me, but a dynamic, empathetic Communal remembrance. Yes, his blood was shed for you. Yes, he was a spectacle on the cross. Yes, he in his own person did all sorts of things that are commendable. And he should be lifted up and his name should be lifted up. And he is in the truest sense the only real hero. But when Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, he was not primarily calling attention to himself. He had not forgotten about serving others. He said, I'm among you as one that's serving in the same mind that was not looking on his own things but on the things of others when he said do this in remembrance of me he was looking out for the benefit of his own people and saying you have access into the holiest of all if you will cleanse yourself with my blood if you will draw nigh to God with my blood then you can come boldly before the throne of grace and ask God for more grace and for more mercy to come closer and closer to God and ultimately I finish by saying to you 
that the overcomers have come to an understanding of the benefit of this ordinance and they have participated in the beauty of all of these things that Christ has availed on our behalf. They thoroughly love the Lord Jesus. They thoroughly see before their eyes the wonderful visage of all that he did and the way in which that entails the awfulness of crucifixion, the broken body, the spilled out blood, the miserable visage, and all the rest of it, and the realization that most people walked by and gave him no attention. He had no form, no comeliness, that we should behold him and desire him. But we do. Overcomers love our Lord Jesus. We do appreciate him. But I'm saying to you, according to Revelation chapter 12 and verse 11, I'm telling you that as it relates to simply the blood of Jesus, just one of the elements of the dynamic application of this, we are told in Revelation 12 and verse 11 that the overcomers, they overcome the devil. They overcome these last days. They overcome the hardest temptations that in some respects have been visited upon the churches of Jesus Christ that are yet to escalate into more frequent and more intense experiences of travail for the man-child company. But I'm saying to you, as we gather together in days in the future and we celebrate this communion of the bread and cup, I'm ex 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 exhorting you to do this in remembrance of the Lord Jesus and to know that you can overcome by the blood of the Lamb. You can overcome, Jesus wants you to know. By the blood of the Lamb. When Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. He said that so you will participate in his victory. I have overcome the world. No, I am not going to become a literal presence where Jesus is going to show up bodily in every single church and overcome as a, a prototype for you afresh every single day. He's not going to mystically be inside your pillowcase or something like that when you weep before him and struggle for the power to face your trials and so on. No, brothers and sisters, as we commune before the Lord using the emblems of bread and the fruit of the vine, I'm saying that this is a symbol of Jesus Christ, but we should be entering into this with a dynamic memory, knowing that we remember what Jesus did because he is drawing his bride toward the recollection of all that he purchased for your benefit. He served us. He did this for us. And we should remember these benefits and enter into it.